the longer we spend doing this, the more we learn about it, the deeper down the rabbit hole we fall, the more likely or the clearer it seems that this is a major, major civilizational inflection point. Hello there from Bedford, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Andy Edstrom back on the show where we're going to be discussing the thesis behind his book, Why Buy Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, today we're going to kick off with BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Have you checked out their big announcement yet? I've been talking about this for a few weeks now. BlockFi is to launch a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card early this year, something I've been massively excited about because with this, you can stack sats with every card purchase you make. Very, very cool. And with their card, you will be able to earn a market-leading 1.5% rewards on every card purchase. The waitlist registration is now open for all BlockFi clients, so if you want to join the priority waiting list, then you just need to open up a BlockFi account and the public waitlist is slated to open very soon. If you are interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com. That is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have the Mighty Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin and the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. They are consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. They also have the best in class in customer service. So if you've got a problem and you reach out to them, whoever you are, wherever you are, they are going to get that shit fixed. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to the show with Andy. Great to have him back. And we're going to be covering the thesis behind his book, Why You Should Be Buying Bitcoin. Now, Andy was on the show a few weeks ago where we discussed MicroStrategy's Bitcoin Moonshot, but I wanted to get him back on and discuss his excellent book. First of all, you should definitely go and read it. It's a bloody great book. But Andy also wrote this as an investment thesis. But what I think the book does really well is address all a lot of the FUD that we as Bitcoiners are used to, that we're facing daily. Even right now, if you go on Twitter, all the journalists are coming out of the woodwork to slam Bitcoin with the same garbage they've been recycling since 2017 and that garbage which was recycled from 2013. The same shit over and over. So anyway, I asked Andy to come back on and tell you why you should buy Bitcoin. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any questions or feedback, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I do reply to everyone as long as you don't send me anything weird. Outside of that, on Defiance, I've got a brand new show out where we're looking at the death of distance and how people have more options about where they want to live and work, how the impact on COVID has changed office environments. And now people are thinking, do you know what? If I want to live somewhere else, if it's got a different living environment or regulatory environment, they're starting to make those considerations. This is how the vote with your foot is becoming stronger than the vote at the ballot. If you want to check that out, that's at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great weekend and I will see you all next week. Andy, getting to talk to you quite regularly now, man. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's great to see you. Good to see you again, man. All right, listen, look. What a couple of weeks. 
we just, we had big we had Bitcoin just go fucking wild, and then we saw a big dip. Where most of us are like, I get this, I'm cool, I can understand this. I've been here before. Let's bounce back. But listen, a lot of my friends who I've been saying since, well, I've been saying since the last bull market, but I've been saying since five thousand, six thousand, all the way up. I've been saying check out Bitcoin. Now they're seeing it in the news. Now they're hearing about people getting rich, and they're like, shit, am I too late? Is it too expensive? Blah, blah, blah. And I think more than ever, I should just send them your book, right? Why buy Bitcoin? They should know why. Amen. Music to my ears. This Amen, is the problem bro. with Bitcoin. You and I have been dealing this for dealing with this for, for years now. It's the it's the NGU technology creates FOMO. But if you don't have that underlying knowledge of the asset and knowledge of the whole phenomenon, then you're going to have weak hands. You're not going to have strong hands to hodl through those inevitable downturns. And we just came through one of those, or we're still coming through it as we speak. I'll tell you something funny, right? <clears throat> I phoned my dad up. I, I phoned him up because like the Bitcoin was doing well. And I said, look, dad, I think I may have said this on another show. I was like, dad, do you want some golf clubs? He's like, well, I said, look, Bitcoin's doing really well. You know, you haven't had any new golf clubs in a while. Let me get you some golf clubs. He was like, oh, no. I was like, come on, Dad, just do it. It's, honestly, I promise you, it's fine. And he was like, okay, okay. So he goes away and he comes back and he was like, oh, Dad, look. Uh, it's like, Pete, it's a lot of money. It's like uh, about two and a half thousand. Well, about $3,000. And I was like, no, no, it's fine, Dad. I love you, man. You've done a lot for me. It's fine. I can get you this. It's not a problem. I'll get these golf clubs. Anyway, so I'm trying to get them ordered. It takes a bit of time. And then the price dumps, right, from 42 down to like 30 And my, my dad phones me up. He's like, oh, you don't have to get me them anymore, Pete. You don't have to get them. You don't have to get me them anymore. Don't worry about it. I was like, Dad, shut up, man. It's like, <laughs> Dad, it was like six thousand dollars last last year. I was like, Bitcoin does this. Like, at some point this year, it's going to be back over forty-two. Might even do it this month. Be back over fifty. Like, I've never been so calm about losing so much money in my life. <laughs> Amen. Well, you're a good son for uh, offering up. Your dad a new set of clubs, and uh, I'm fortunate that my dad has drunk the Kool Aid with me, so he's got his own mm. stack. Um, he? Yeah, which is uh, which is is good, but yeah, I have to agree with you. Coming into the weekend, I was wondering, and you know, I usually send kind of a weekly Bitcoin informational slash shill email to my friends, family, you know, mailing list. It's not a subscription thing. It. Oh yeah, I have you I on get? the list. I think yeah, I had you email, on the list. Man. Yeah, I, yeah, I get it. It's a good email. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And you know, at some point, who knows? Maybe I'll maybe I'll allow people to like subscribe. But right now, you you know, you can't you can't click on or join. Um, but I didn't put one out. I started drafting drafting one last weekend, and then I stopped. And I was thinking about you know it's been it's been moving far and fast, and I'm not sure I really want to just you know add to the FOMO fire. And I know I'm going to take crap from some people you know if they pile in in the 40s and so i didn't hit the send button and right now i'm feeling glad that i didn't but um yeah it was it's bizarre you it, when it moves that far there's always a that far that fast there's always a, a risk of a retracement on the other hand it's really hard to call you know how far it's going to move before the retracement i mean i know several people who are cutting their positions you know basically at 30 um or even in the high 20s and um, yeah, they they missed uh, they missed some of the ups, and especially if you're paying tax. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. This mm -hmm. is why we hodl, right? This is I I don't mm -hmm. know. I can't call these I can't call these short term moves. 
Yeah. Well, listen, look, it's uh, it's been a strange few weeks to see it ride up. And I know what you mean. Like, even with some of my friends, now would be a time I would struggle. Like, even... Yeah, you know, back in ten, you know, thousand. It's, it's like I feel comfortable saying to people, you know, you should check this out, take a bit of interest, even on the way up to twenty. I feel nervous now, just because wouldn't you hate it if somebody came to you at forty-two and it dropped down to thirty and stayed there for six months? They might, they might, <laughs> they might, they might, they might fold. Yeah. It's, a, it's it's a funny thing, and I've actually I've talked about it a bit less now because of that. So you but know, at the so same you know, time, yeah. So go ahead. Well, I was going to say at the same time, my fundamentals are the same. I think. Do you know what? One of the biggest issues we have with Bitcoin is the unit price because it's so misleading. It misleads you into thinking something's expensive because it's 40,000. It's not like a car, right? It's 40,000. I think if we, if we went into more regular sats pricing, we migrated to that. If that became the sand, standard, I think it would be a lot easier for people to, to digest this. Yeah, I just agree see- completely. The unit bias is so tough. And then jumping all the way to sats, you know, I, I don't know, I take crap for this. I I sort of like bits, you know, before we get to sats. It's a pretty far bridge, right, to get all the way to sats. And mm. maybe I'm just not smart enough and can't do the the mental math as quickly as as uh, Matt O'Dell. Uh but it's um yeah, I agree with you. We have a, we have for sure we have a unit problem. And regarding the what you said about, you know, telling people to get in versus, you know, being a little nervous. Yeah, I was telling people who are getting interested, of course, you know, DCA, right? Always DCA. But a month or two ago, I was saying, look, if you're on zero, right, if you have no position, it's okay to it's okay to get to buy a significant piece now and then DC the rest. But I had to agree with you. Now, I am more likely to say just start with the DCA, you know, rather than the rather than the the pile in, you know, rather than putting a third in right off the mark or half in right off the mark. These are tough calls. It's easier. It's easier to, to just DCA and set it and forget it. Yeah, I'll tell you another interesting thing as well. It's like weighing up that um, you know, idea about what potential gains you can make versus weighing up what potential losses you might have holding Sterling. Because I think what's going to happen is uh, it feels like over time, those opportunities to get 100x are going to disappear. The 10x itself is going to be quite difficult, right, to actually time that right. You know, but But at the same time, you've got some people who it becomes more of a necessity to end up holding Bitcoin just so they don't lose purchasing power. Yeah, less so where we are is still, still an issue. But I think in certain countries, it's become, going to become more of an issue. So I think, it's, I think it's the right time for us to be making the show, Andy. I think it's the right time to be talking about why buy Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's always the right time. On the one hand, it's always the right time to learn about Bitcoin. On the other hand, you're right that after a pump and after a move, it's good to be reminded of what are the underlying principles? Why do we believe in this thing? What are we going to remind ourselves, you know, when it's moving down in price rather than up? And why are we here for the long term rather than just here to make a quick trade, make a quick buck? Yeah. Although it's good to make a quick buck, but <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm with you. All right, dude, let's, let's go straight into it. Okay. First and foremost, I'm going to kick off. With your own question, dude, it's your question. It's your book. Why buy Bitcoin? Like, why buy Bitcoin? Do people actually <laughs> yeah. do we? Do people actually put that to you? Do they say to you, "Okay, Andy, why buy Bitcoin?" Yeah, they do. Why should I buy it? Um, absolutely. Why? why buy Bitcoin? So, as you know, I wrote the book as an investment thesis. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the basic structure is the book of the book is uh, basics on you know what is money, 
then why, you know, what is the current financial system and why is it, why is it so messed up? And then what are the basics of Bitcoin and how does it work? And then what are the, you know, what's the upside potential? What's the valuation potential? And then finally, what are the risks? And there's plenty of risks, right? I got like 40 mm-hmm. pages. I got 40 pages of FUD in this book, okay? I saw it, man. I saw it, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, so why buy Bitcoin? I mean, I think for most readers of this book, it is it is the investment thesis. In other words, mm-hmm. this book is not the, you know, is not for the person who is disenfranchised. It's not the person in Africa or South America who literally, you know, cannot move money through the existing system because they don't have a bank account. They know why to they know why to buy Bitcoin. They don't know or they know why to use it potentially. This is more about the digital gold, about the hard money asset, about the thing that's likely to protect your overall investment portfolio or your your cash portfolio, frankly, from the ravages potentially of inflation. That's more the focus of the book. But, you know, of course, I talk about the characteristics of money. I talk about, you know, how different forms of money score, including Bitcoin. And that is more than just about the uh, scarcity and the and the inflation proof aspect. It's much more than that. But I would, I'd have to say, you know, if it was like about one thing, it's mostly uh, it's mostly what I described. Right. OK. Do you do you tailor that message for whoever you're telling or is it the same whatever? Um. That's a good question. Probably. I probably cheat a little bit on it. As you know, one of the one of the beauties of bat, of uh, Bitcoin is it's so multifaceted. I mean, there's so many ways you can pitch it. I'm always interested in people's pitches, right? I'm always interested mm. in the in how people are attacking it, you know. What's working basically? What pitch is working for you, right, Pete? You know, what what's resonating with the with the people you're talking to or, you know, among some particular group or type of person um if you want to go in that direction. So, yeah, I mean, of course, I tailor it a bit. And when people ask me, like, why did I write the book? I mean, there's a a number of people I wrote. If I wrote it for my clients, obviously, I wrote it, however, for, you know, any intelligent reader, right? I mean, the idea is it's it's meant to be, it's not a super low-level book. But on the other hand, it's not so difficult that someone's going to pick it up. The average person's going to pick it up and be totally confused. Um, I had some feedback, you know, any... If, if you have z- absolutely no concept of finance or money or markets or anything, you know, it may be a little bit of a, of a tougher read, but it is meant to be accessible to the wider world of people. And in fact, my original draft was quite technical, and I hired a very good editor who was not technical, right? Who, and I tasked her with, look, you know, please, Beth, her name's Beth Rashbaum. She's awesome. She edited one of Stephen Hawking book, Hawking's books, and she edited, nice. um, yeah, this book called The Snowball, which is basically definitive Buffett uh, biography, Warren Buffett biography. Mm-hmm. And I asked her specifically, I said, I said, Beth, you know, make this readable by your average intelli- intelligent person, not, you know, a crazy Bitcoiner, basically, um, <laughs> not a super nerd. I want people to be able to read this. And so, so that was one of the goals. And uh, I think, you know, hopefully we, uh, we achieved that. All right. Well, listen, look, we're going to work through some of this because I need a show to point my friends to. Look, because you said, like, what are their pitches? Right now, pitching somebody cold who doesn't have an interest in Bitcoin is still difficult because you can explain to them inflation. They don't care. Yeah, they just don't care. You can explain to them it's the best money. They don't care. Like, whatever it is, they don't care. Um, I've been pitching all year, man, like I said to you. If there's a little bit of interest, like, okay, tell me about Bitcoin. The easiest pitch is that, well, it's the best form of money that's ever existed. If the investment thesis pr- proves correct, it will deliver exponential returns 
as it becomes adopted globally. That's, yeah. I do really like Vijay Boyapati's explanation where he says it's, it's like gold. It's basically digital gold, but it has this magical property that you can te- teleport it around the world. It's gold that you can teleport. I love that. But the problem with, with that is a lot of people still don't own, own gold. They don't understand why they should own gold. It's only people who understand investment portfolios who really consider that. But anyway, it's a good time. I want to be able to send the show out to people. Okay, I'm going to just augment some... one of your thoughts there, by the yeah, way, about, about it being gold, which is I didn't mention one of the other reasons I wrote this book was to get my uh, cohort, my wealth management, you know, colleagues into this space. And uh, now I say I used to say it was to educate them. Now we're at the point where I say that it was to shame them into buying Bitcoin <laughs> because because what you said is most wealth, even in the U.S., you know, managed wealth, let's say, is like call it $10 trillion. And most of those portfolios, as you suggested, don't even have gold. So, uh, you know, gold has been that asset that hasn't performed all that great for about 50 years. I mean, it was really crucial to own in that inflationary period in the 1970s when we uh, left the gold standard, as you know. Uh-huh. But it's been, I don't want to say dead money, but it's just sort of, you know, slowly kept pace with inflation. Maybe it's kept pace with stock prices, excluding dividends, you know, over particular periods of time. It kind of depends on which time period you're measuring. But yeah, most wealth managers don't even have their clients in gold yet which means it's even sort of one bridge farther to get them into the to the bitcoin play although as you pointed out because bitcoin has several characteristics that far exceed those of gold i.e. better gold than gold so to speak it is hopefully starting to resonate uh with some people and of course as as uh, as number goes up they're starting to pay more attention so oh, i interrupted you but please continue they turn out well listen i've used uh, your book is a structure for this. Um, I've not gone into all the sections, but I think there's some good kind of like, it's a really good structure of a book to take you through like the your own personal investment thesis. But okay, so we've started with why people should care about Bitcoin. But I think I'd love this title that you have for one of your chapters. What is so special about Bitcoin? Yeah, what is so special about Bitcoin? Um, God, there's... There's so much there. I mean, I think one of the ways I approach it, is this truly unique? Does this make it special? I don't know. But I apply this framework of what makes good money, right? I zoom out and Mm -hmm. I say, okay, what are the characteristics of money? My view is that most people say there's like five. And I think that's too simplistic. I really wish it were true, but I see there's 14. And they are, you know, good money is identifiable, durable, divisible, dense, transferable, fungible, private, scarce, short-term stable, long-term stable, required for some important purpose, backed by some powerful entity, censorship resistant, and unseizable. Okay, that's a mouthful. That's 14 things. Now, no form of money, okay, no form of money scores well on all those characteristics. So any form of money is pros and cons. It's a mixed bag among all those characteristics. And I think people can argue that certain are more important than others. Clearly, Bitcoin shines with respect to scarcity, right? Uh, Durability and divisibility. Obviously, it shines with respect to uh, being censorship resistant and unseizable. That's probably where it's unique. 
I mean, you had mentioned the the transferability, like, you know, like Satoshi said, you know, I'm going to butcher the quote, but in one of his early emails, it was, yeah, you know, imagine basically a monetary metal, except it isn't shiny, right? It's just gray and dull. But the one thing is you can send it anywhere in the world on a communications channel. That's obviously huge. Yeah, mm. uh, the transferability there is is uh, is massive and unique. So I think as it relates to money, those are the most important characteristics. If we're talking about you know how is Bitcoin unique otherwise, I mean how how philosophical do we want to get? How cosmic do we want to get? You know, is it a life form? You know, is it a cybernetic organism? You know, is it feeding itself? You know, do we hold it or does it hold us? You know, is it a meme that that uh, that infects our minds and causes us to uh, to feed the fire? Um, yeah, I try to keep the book more focused on the it's better money. And if it reaches its potential, then it'll be worth a hell of a lot more. Um, I don't get that cosmic in the book. Um, you know, if I had <laughs> infinite time, I'd love to write a book which uh, gets much, much more cosmic. But, uh, you know, that that's kind of how I think about it, and how I wrote about it. It's funny, I wrote down then, you, when you talked about those uh, properties of money, it's like, people don't really think about this, though. And then I, like, I realized, actually, this is complete bullshit. They do when they need to. So, perfect example, when I was out in Cambodia last summer with the kids, they're a country which operates with a local currency, I can't remember the name of the currency now, uh, and the dollar. And there's a couple of really interesting things. They want the dollar. Okay, so firstly, they want the dollar. But secondly, which is really important, they check the notes. If there is a blemish on the note, they don't want it. There's a little tear on it. They don't want it, which I found was super interesting because at the time, it didn't really cross my mind. It crossed my mind a little bit because of the whole Bitcoin thing. But, you know, right now when I'm thinking about it, I am thinking, well, I don't think about my friends don't think about money. They just they get it and they spend it. They don't think about all those things you talk about It's because they don't have to. Yeah, they really look, don't so have to. Let's use that example you just mentioned, and I love that because it, it's. I think of two parameters of the fourteen characteristics of money. Mm -hmm. When it, with respect to, oh, you know, is this be, is this bill, is this note basically in mint condition? One of them I think of is identifiable, right? Yeah. And actually, I, we didn't talk about that a minute ago, but that you know, Bitcoin shines through there, right? I mean, the identifiability and the and the resistance to counterfeiting with Bitcoin is clear. Like there's no, you know, if you try to send me, I don't know, BSV or something, right? And that doesn't, you know, conform to the network consensus <laughs> rules, like the transaction ain't going to go through. Um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty straightforward. And then the second piece, I think there is durability, right? Because if people, you know, in, in Cambodia wanting bills or notes in mint condition, um, that suggests that they're like, hey, I don't want a raggedy old uh, note where if I stick it in my pocket or goes through the laundry or, you know, someone tries to grab it out of my hand and, and tears it, you know, that it's going to be damaged. So, yeah, I think that's a good example of those two characteristics coming out. And as you said, people think in terms of the here and now and what's physically there, like I want a, I want a high quality bill rather than a low quality one. And I think that I would map it onto those two characteristics of durability and uh, identifiability. So it was a real eye opener for me, though. And it was a real eye-opener. Explain it to the children, because they didn't understand that. They've only ever been used to dealing with pounds. That's it. Or they go on holiday, they deal with another currency. They couldn't understand we were using American dollars in Cambodia, and I had to explain this to them. Uh, but I've seen spoiled? that in other places. Aren't we spoiled, I think we are. Peter? <laughs> I think we are. I think, well, I think we are, because actually, you know, we moan and bitch and 
talk about our, our you know the bank of england or the fed and you know, how terrible they are but com- compared to the rest of the world we're actually, in some ways we're very fortunate now i having been to you know many i've been fortunate enough to travel a lot now i've seen a lot of really terrible places um even western places i know turkey has a problem we've talked about lebanon's had a problem with inflation i've never been to africa but you know i'm fully aware of the currency problems across the continent uh, we're very lucky yet we're the ones in some way in some ways also getting to leap in first into bitcoin um, but i am aware like you know there's plenty of adoption of bitcoin in these markets as well but it's trying to get people within western markets where are to explain this like if you're in argentina this is easy you're in Venezuela, it's relatively easy. Yeah, and there's many places it's really easy to explain the value of proposition of Bitcoin. It is much harder in the UK or the US. I agree completely. And this is, you know, one of the virtues. I mean, in our recent episode that we did, you know, I think the quote that you highlighted was something like, you know, this is the first asset in history, you know, where where average people have had a shot at it before the the billionaires and the hedge funds and the and the corporate investors. And you know, I'm so lucky to be, you know, born and raised in uh, in America and, you know, have had a pretty easy path relative to most of the world. And no doubt there's a huge segment of the global population that just gets this intuitively. They get they get that it will work for them. Yeah, the price might be or the purchasing power might be somewhat volatile, but uh, if they need it, they use it. And so that's one of the ethical elements that I present to people. You know, the skeptics, um, they talk about, you know, oh, this is just one more instrument to make the rich richer, right? Make, uh, you know, make the billionaire, give the billionaires an opportunity to buy some asset that's, you know, going to go up another 10x, 100x. And I really don't see it that way. I see it as a lot of plebs got in, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ones who were paying attention, a lot of people in foreign countries. It's unquantifiable. We'll never know, you know, how many people that live on a few dollars a day, you know, got a small piece of Bitcoin and it changed their life. Um, I hope that it's a lot and I hope that continues as uh, as the thing develops. It may be true that the thousand x return, at least in a short time period, is is behind us. But uh, I still think that yeah, I think that people all over the world have a shot at making their lives better if they can learn about this thing and 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 hodl. I tell you another way to get people on board is is another magical thing with Bitcoin. Um, but it requires giving some away. But I still do that. I mean, I'm sure you do. I mean, we all do in some ways, right? If I'm with somebody, I'm like download a wallet and they download a wallet and I send them 10 bucks. And, you know, whilst it might require the six confirmations, the actual transaction usually shows up straight away. And when that happens and I say to them, that happened without any intermediary, without anybody in between us, no third party. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, with the bank, if I send you 10 pound with the bank, I go to the bank, they have to authorize it. Then it appears in your account, maybe, you know, a couple of hours later, sometimes instant if they've got the right setup. Certainly not going to happen if you're going abroad. But what I just did then was instant, and there's no third party. And you could be anywhere in the world, and you could be anyone, and I can do that. And I think that is some of the magic. That, that actually is something that really kind of piques their interest. Yeah, I totally agree. I agree completely. I've used that trick. I still use it occasionally. And um, it's also the you know the classic case, the old story about the Allen and Company con- conference about the you know the Silicon Valley guys and the and the legacy finance guys with Wences, you know, passing a quarter million bucks worth of Bitcoin around the table, wallet to wallet. Um, it makes an impression on your average person on the street, and it makes an impression on guys who are already billionaires. Uh, it is a magical thing. 
Well, it's also when you see those things on Twitter, it's like $846 million of Bitcoin was transferred for $34. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what? What? But it is it magical is when, you, when you start to use it like that. Um, okay, cool. So we've covered that bit. We've covered the magic of Bitcoin. Um, I like this, another point in your book. You're like, why won't it go away? I mean, this is part of the magic, right? You know, every especially these, for someone like Peter Schiff, that's an even more important question. Why won't this thing go away? I said it won't work at a dollar. It's now $30,000 and it's still here. Why, the, why won't it go away? Yeah. And there's a quote, which I think is uh, attributed to Soros, to George, uh, George Soros, the legendary investor, trader, macro guy. And yeah, it's basically if something goes down by 80%, right, and then doesn't die, then mm -hmm. there's probably something there. And that being true of, you know, investment assets, you know, a stock, a bond, a currency, whatnot. I think it was Dan Tapiero was, uh, was, was telling, you know, me about this, was quoting that quote. And yeah, it's really true from an investment perspective. And then, of course, there's the, uh, you know, there's the sewer rat ana analogy <laughs> from Andreas. Uh, that's a classic one, which is this thing, you know, it's like, uh, it's like Bane from Batman. You know, it was born mm. in the darkness. Uh, it has been just consistently and constantly attacked, and uh, every attack seems to make it stronger. And you know, I love Bitcoin. I think I talk about Bitcoin obituaries in the book. You know that website. Although sadly, there haven't been as many obituaries written about Bitcoin lately. Have you noticed that, Pete? Like twenty twenty, there weren't that many of them. Well, it's harder. It's harder to say. You know, Bitcoin has died at thirty thousand dollars. I mean, I did see. I get the alerts, the Google alerts, and I did get one in this morning, and three in a row, three mainstream articles. Is Bitcoin's the biggest bubble ever about to burst? And are investors about to lose money? I was like, Oh, come on, man! Are we really doing this again? Are we really doing this again? Um, yeah. Somebody pointed that out. I was tweeting last weekend, and and yeah, I just I've kind of given up on the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to complain about it and you know shame them, and now I just wonder if there's something there that I don't understand. I just wonder if there's some factor. I mean, part of it is the clickbait, right? So the the headline you just cited, you know, like is it crashing? Is it is it dying? I guess they just have to do that for the clicks, right? So I say, okay, you know, that's how the business model basically has changed with the. Uh, internet and aggregator uh based uh you know search functions things like that so that is what it is and it's a it's a shame and yet even in the analysis you know uh recent articles i've seen out of the wall street journal and the economist and the financial times i mean these are these are otherwise well-respected periodicals in the investment and finance space and they just keep getting it wrong and mm -hmm. will they ever get it right i don't know i mean i think I think the thing it has most to do with is is the volatility, is the price volatility, is the, is the quote unquote crashing like you talked about. And um, you know, thank God Bitcoin is is volatile because it's been it's the one thing that's uh, that's I think caused central bankers and legacy bankers and uh, the powers that be, people that actually wield power, to dismiss it and laugh it off and let it grow and get stronger and let people learn about it and let people build actual functions and utility on top of it for years now and build into the thing that truly is unkillable. You know, if it hadn't been as price volatile, they actually would have viewed it as money. So they still tell us <laughs> it's too volatile. It's not money. And my reaction is, yep, you're right. 
don't worry about us over here in the corner. You know, as big corners, it's not money. Uh, you got nothing to nothing to fear, no, nothing to worry about. Wink, wink. Joe, you know I think there's a couple of things going on though, Andy. I think firstly, I think there's some journalists who've been covering Bitcoin for a long time. Um, and I, I'm not going to name names, but initially quite positively and i th- i've noticed them over time i think of two particularly who've become more and more negative with every cycle and i can't help but feel like you've been covering this but you've not bought any and i think it's hurting you and i, I understand that right look it would suck like i wish i'd got in in 2011 i wish in 2013 when i discovered it i'd stuck around i wish in 2017 i hadn't screwed it up so badly but the reality is it is i think some of these people didn't buy and they've watched this thing go from strength to strength. They've missed out, and I—that's got to hurt. Um, it's got to hurt. And this is—I yeah. think you were talking about this with uh, with Matt O'Dell. You know the yeah. the salty the salty uh, journalist, right? Because because I guess for you know journalistic integrity or journalistic objectivity, they didn't buy it. You know because they were covering it. And yeah, yeah. it's a problem. I mean, you you have to wonder you have to wonder whether these guys would have been more pro on it if they'd had a little stack. If they benefited from it, um, I get the journalistic integrity argument, although <laughs> it certain it certainly hasn't you know helped it, no. cover it fairly. No, I don't. I don't get it. I tell you why I don't get it. Well, firstly, from what you've just said there, but secondly, if you're a, a journalist who's covering um, the economy, are you not allowed to own money? You're not allowed to own shares, stocks. I just I don't buy it. I don't buy that one. I just, I don't buy that at all. But I think there's a second one. I think the ones who have to cover it, who, you know, suddenly Bitcoin's in the news again. Is it $40,000? You know, The Economist or whoever has to cover it. You know, you're asking people to cover something. Well, look, Andy, we spend all day every day thinking about this and looking at this. I mean, I certainly don't know a lot. Don't know anywhere near as much as you. But I feel like I know enough for me. With my friends, I know enough. But these people, they've barely looked at it. And they come along and they probably Google and they do some research and they see the same stuff again. And probably some of their own bias, they probably covered it in 2017 and thought, oh shit, it's come back and I didn't get any as well. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff, but I, there's very little integrity in the journalism around Bitcoin. And I think that's for a number of reasons. I think it's a lot to do with the skill and the amount of time people spend on it, the the the, the experts who actually are working on it, and that you know that saltiness. I think it comes down to that. Can I just play off that a little? I agree with you uh, completely, especially with the specialization. One of the things that's worth thinking about in the world today is the world ain't getting simpler, right? It's getting more complex. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. like how can a generalist, how can your average generalist journalist cover multiple topics? I mean, it's mind boggling to me, you know, as like Bitcoin is my side hustle, right? Like my my full time job is is managing clients money. But mm-hmm. yeah, I spend hours and hours and hours, you know, trying to understand this thing. I think it applies to politics too, right? I mean, this is not my original idea. Pe- people have been talking about this for a long time. But it's like, how do you have a legislative body, an elected body, where every single one of them has to cast a vote on all these different issues? Um, and they sort of try to solve it by having this, you know, committee structure. You know, like in the U.S., you'll you'll have the whatever Senate Finance Committee, or you'll have the you know, the Telecom or Communications Committee or the Trade you know, various committees to specialize a bit. But yeah, it's it's hard to imagine how in an increasingly complex world, someone can cover something intelligently. Well, sorry, how someone can cover multiple topics intelligently. I really think there's probably more specialization required. 
Um, whether we'll get that, I, ha I have no idea. There's a precious few, as you know, there's a precious few guys who would call themselves journalists. You know, Aaron Von, Van Verdum would be one, probably. Yeah, Aaron's Lorshin. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, who, 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 uh, who specialize and, uh, but there aren't that many. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, I think, I think Aaron's the best we've got. I think he's a fantastic journalist. I think there's a few good people. I do. I mean, obviously I'm not interested in altcoins like Laura is, but I do think Laura's a journalist. I think I, I know I'm not a journalist when I follow her work. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm more of an entertainer, uh, but she's definitely a journalist. Um, but there, I'm not going to so want to name some names, but I'm not going to name some names. But I just think some people are salty. All right, man. So look, Bitcoin is money, though. But is it money that's not money that people think money is? Yeah. Will it become so, the money that people think it is? So let me. So, OK, so you're alluding, first of all, to the title, right? So the title is Why Buy Bitcoin. And then the subtitle is Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. So is Bitcoin money? Yes, Bitcoin is money. Is it great money? I think not yet, but I think it has the potential to become great money. And then there's a couple ideas wrapped up in this, which I talk about in the book. So the first, obviously, again, not my original idea, is money is an adjective, right? Not a noun. Mm -hmm. um, I use the example in the book of Swingers, right? Swingers launched John Favreau's career. You know, he's a multi-billion dollar director, directs a bunch of the Marvel movies and stuff. But this was his project, and it became kind of a cult classic. And there's that line in the movie where he's trying to screw up the courage, you know, to go talk to this girl. And his buddy says, you're so money, and you don't even know it. And, you know, everything is a little bit money. <clears throat> and I use Carl Menger's, I think it was Menger, his framework for three basic types of goods in the economy. Consumption goods, okay, that's the stuff we use every day. Mm -hmm. Capital goods, those are the things that we invest in to make the consumption goods. And then money, or the monetary good. But those categories are all blurry. So <clears throat> you've got crossover. So your house, right, is part consumption good because you're living there, but it's part capital good because you could rent it out to someone else for income, you know, or you could start a business there, right? Case in point. Mm -hmm. um, it's a capital good for you, for sure. There's always the classic cases of consumption goods becoming money or used as money, you know, cigarettes in prison, soap, cell phone minutes in Africa, all that stuff. And then you've got a moneyness component for the capital goods. You know, Apple stock can be used to transfer value, can be used as money. Example I use in the book is, say you've got a portfolio of investment properties. You know, let's mm -hmm. say um, basically residential buildings, right? Apartment buildings. Well, if you buy all those properties one off, you know, maybe you buy them at a valuation of 15 times cash flow. But if you take that portfolio, which is illiquid, and you float it on the stock exchange, now maybe it trades for 20 times cash flow. So you've got 15 times cash flow of you know, capital good and five times cash flow of money. And what we in finance actually call that moneyness is just liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. How liquid is the asset? So you've got, these, you know, you've got these blurry lines around these basic categorizations, but now we have Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is to my mind, the first pure money. It's the first form of money that is only good as money. It's only useful as money, and it's not useful as, as, you know, as anything else. And so that is a paradigm shift. That is something different. Now, as to the question of, is it money yet, or how good of a money is it, that gets back to, to, the, to that framework of, oh, there's four, 14 characteristics of money. 
And maybe, you know, characteristics I value aren't quite the same as the ones you value or somebody else values. You know, the, the censorship resistance or the unseizability usually doesn't matter, except when it really matters. Um, and, you know, whether you got to cross a border basically to, to get out of a war zone, you know, or for some other similar reason. And so that's where the question of, you know, scoring Bitcoin today, how does, how does Bitcoin score today in the book, which is now 15 months old? I, I, the way I scored it, Bitcoin is better than gold overall already. It's not as good as the dollar overall today. But of course, the trajectory for gold is flat, right? Gold mm -hmm. ain't changing. The tra trajectory for fiat money is downward as they print more of it. And the trajectory for Bitcoin is upward as not only people learn about it, but as all these layers of utility, these second layers and third layers, the wallets, you know, the exchanges, the lending capabilities, all this stuff as it gets built out, that stuff is clearly on an upward trajectory. And so Bitcoin is, to me, going to be money and used as money in the future if it reaches its potential and it looks like it's headed in that direction. And in the meantime, can you use it as money? Yes. Today, you can mostly use it as a store of value. You can transact it in it if you need to. Most people don't. Because what idiot would sell their Bitcoin, you know, for a <laughs> for a T-shirt or something else? Because it's probably going to go up in value. But eventually, eventually, I do think people will transact with it more. So that crossover, as a as the dollar dollar goes down and Bitcoin goes up, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's like that. Um, that's essentially your hyper Bitcoinization, really. So what are the? Th I, I mean. I think we, I've made enough shows on this. People know the problem with the dollar, why that's, let's say it's slowly dying right now. But what are the things that Bitcoin is missing to you? For, for me, the volatility is a problem for it to be money. And the wide acceptance is a problem. I think the latter is a lot easier to solve with technology. Most people, you can train to use a wallet. But my, I think the biggest issue with wider acceptance and it being a, becoming a union of account is the volatility. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you're spot on. And the volatility, it's looked lower overall, mostly, you know, in the last year or so. I mean, we just had this big downturn, which is a reminder that, okay, <laughs> it's still volatile. Um, mm. You know, when will that reduce? Well, it has reduced over time on average. You know, you look at the yearly standard deviation numbers, that's standard mm -hmm. deviation of price, you know, in fiat, right, in dollars or sterling or what have you. And it has been falling over time. And that's to be expected. And, but on the other hand, I am not sort of holding my breath for, oh, it's going to be less volatile than gold next year or a few years from now. I, and when I say volatile, I want to be clear, I'm not just talking about as denominated in fiat money. I'm talking about in terms of, let's say, purchasing power mm. against, you know, either a basket of consumption goods or against, you know, other capital assets. Because the dollar could be crashing whilst Bitcoin is actually quite stable. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. I also, by the way, don't expect the dollar to crash, you know, the next few years. Some people are talking about, you know, this is it. Um, I can see the dollar going down, you know, another 10%. Uh, versus, you know, basket of whatever euros, yen, sterling. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But yeah, I think the dollar is going to be with us for for a while yet. Not least because those of us who understand Bitcoin, or at least think we do, think that it's going to be worth a lot more. 
and we're just not going to transact with it. I mean, you know, I'm really happy that people can transact with Bitcoin in parts of the world or in personal situations where they really need that uncensorability. But the rest of us are are just going to we're just going to hold. We're just going to hodl. You know, you've mm-hmm. I know you've talked about, I think, holding three more halvings or, you know, while. Yeah. Well, so my view on it is I'm not going to not spend any like it's not going to be like I can't spend any. I said I was going to do three halvings. Um, I've got no pension, no savings. I was going to do three halvings. And my expectations, that's nice retirement. Now, look, a couple of caveats. Um if it hits a certain price, um, I might <clears throat> I might take out a small amount and buy a you know, nicer home for me and the kids. Because there is something like, it wouldn't be a case of, I would never look at that home as, oh, well, if I'd have held for 10 years, I'd have had this much money. We would have got the enjoyment of living in that home for 10 years. So that's I'm absolutely fine for that. I've, I've, I've always thought I would do that. Um, and then I might do other things like little special gifts for family and things. But primarily speaking I, the majority of my stack i expect to hold for at least three halvings i've done one i will reassess after each one but you never know i mean look we've seen i've seen people talk about this cycle going up to like fifty thousand, and this cycle going up to three hundred thousand, and then i saw somebody say between four and up to 1.2 million it might have been rao pal and so you might get to the second cycle and it's like, well, how, how high can it go? It might have got to, it might have been that gradually and then suddenly it's happened so quickly. Like, what am I waiting for? Like it's, well, I heard, like, I heard you say that your, your favorite car was, was Lamborghini Countach. I couldn't remember what year. So no, well, that was a you, kid. That was a kid. That was a kid. No, I once we get to Lambo parody, right? So that's 250 K Bitcoin. <laughs> that's where I, we're at Lambo parody. <laughs> then you I'm can peel one Lambo. off and buy yeah. your, uh, and buy your favorite car. For I one am, coin. I am, I am definitely... It's funny. People think it's a vanity thing. I had a, a Countach micro machine as a kid, and I was yeah. just mesmerized by this. It was a gold one. I was mesmerized by this one. But, like, I mean, it's a bit of a meme and a bit of a joke. But the point being is, like, there comes a time it's like, well, you might as well spend some and enjoy some of it. Like, when people took... Like, I've seen people say, I've sold all my Bitcoin. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, sell 10%. I, th- I think if you sold... If you sold 25%, every halving you would continually grow your wealth yeah yeah at the same time you can enjoy some of that money and yeah some people want to save i know there's certain things i'm going to want to enjoy spending it you know you won't want to get to like save it all till i got to like 52 and then suddenly i get sick it's like why all those years we could have had some fun so like can we talk about you know the worst thing that can happen as an investor because i have a page on this in the book what is is the worst thing what is the worst thing that can happen as an investor it's not losing 100% of your investment, right? That's not the worst thing. The worst thing is selling the thing that goes 100x, right, after you sold yeah. it. And yeah. I personally have more than one painful experience. I talk about this in the book. The one I, the example I use is Netflix, right? So right. In, I think it was 2012. Netflix was pretty beat down. You know, they had lost their content catalog. I think the stars contract had rolled off. And they were getting some competition, you know, it was like, you know, Comcast was going to launch a streaming streaming service and maybe AT&T was going to also, and it wasn't looking that great. So I took mm-hmm. a flyer on Netflix, okay? I bought, I think it was, let me see if I got this right, a thousand shares. Okay, the stock was at 50 and I bought a thousand shares, okay? 50K worth of Netflix. And within, I think it was five months, it's it traded from 50 to like 80, okay? I was like, great trade. I'm out. See ya. And today, 
that stock would be worth between two and three million bucks, right? Ooh. Eight years later. Now, would I have held the whole stack? No, I would have. I'm sure I would have peeled some off, you know, along the way. But it's one of those painful examples. And it's really relevant to Bitcoin because Netflix is one of those internet native network effect based phenomena, right? We know there are lots of them now. I mean, same deal with Amazon, um, you know, same deal with all the internet giants. Everyone underestimates, at least in the past, they've underestimated how big these network effect based internet native phenomena can get. And Bitcoin is the latest one. So I learned the hard way, the painful way, you know, missed out on huge, massive gains for more than one of these situations, Amazon being another example, personally. Um, and I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to miss it. Am I going to, you know, peel off pieces, small pieces along the way? Yes, probably. You know, am I going to stay irresponsibly long forever? We'll see. Um, I'm never, as you say, if you, if you peel off little pieces as you go, but you, you know, keep the stack sizable and you're making multiples on that stack through the having cycles. Yeah, you're, it's probably, that stack's probably going to get bigger. And yeah, selling the thing that has huge potential, that is the most painful, most expensive, worst thing you can do in investing. Man. Far uh, worse than, than losing all your money, you know, 100% on, on some position. I had the exact experience back in 2017 before I launched the podcast, back when I was trading shit coins as well. Um, a couple of things that stood out. Somebody recommended to me, it's funny because I was tweeting about it being bullshit today, but somebody recommended to me to uh, buy EOS. And I bought EOS at 50 cents. I bought $25,000 of it at 50 cents. And it went up to 60 and it came back down to 55 and I panic sold. And then it went up to $23. <laughs> but I don't care about oh the because of shit coin. I tell you the biggest regret is the one I got too greedy and I got into mining and I bought like half, half a million dollars of mining. Well, it's not half a million dollars of mining equipment. I bought $300,000 of mining equipment. Then I had all the costs of running the mining and I basically mm -hmm. lost half a million dollars of Bitcoin in mining, that Bitcoin today would be worth three and a half million dollars-ish, I think, if I had just held that Bitcoin. Now, who says I would have held it? Who says I would have done something else? But I've learned so much about conserving Bitcoin. The sats you own over time is more important than the dollar price. Dollar price is interesting, but at the end of each month, I want to own more sats than the last month, that kind of thing. I've really Amen. learned those things. I want to augment this too, because, you know, coming from the legacy finance world and, you know, thinking about portfolio theory, what happens actually, you know, people say diversify. Okay. Well, I, I kind of don't even want to have that discussion, but let's suppose you do believe in diversification. Let's say you buy a portfolio of, you know, 10 assets or 20 assets, then roll the clock forward 20 years, 30 years. What does it look like? What it looks like is most of those things effectively go to zero, at least as a percentage of the portfolio, but a few of them will have hit really, really big, right? And if you just hold on to them forever, you know, it, a few stocks or a few assets, maybe one of those will be Bitcoin, will come to dominate your portfolio, even if you just sort of, you know, size them, you know, reasonably a few percentage points, you know, per position, you know, 20, 30 positions. And that's just the way it goes because it's those continuous compounders, it's those assets that become much, much bigger, much, much more valuable, orders of magnitude more valuable that actually provide most of the investment return for a portfolio of assets. Now, 
you know, I'm irresponsibly long Bitcoin. I know you are too. You know, we believe in this thing. Mm-hmm. We also probably have other sources of income, you know, such that if it goes, you know, belly up, we're, we're not destitute. But I believe in this thing. So, you know, I make a big bet. I make a sizable bet. But even, yeah, even if you just hold a thing for decades and it realizes its potential, that's just what your portfolio is going to look like. It's going to be about a few winners that make it really big. And those things just uh, just swamp the rest of uh, what's going on. Next up, I talked to Andy more about his book, Why Buy Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, my new sponsor, Exodus Wallet. Have you checked them out yet? They've been with me for now a few weeks. I've been starting to use them quite regularly. Now, it's the end of the month coming. It's the end of the month. I really will be getting the benefits from this. As I've said before, my deep cold storage is with Casa, but I am increasingly running my business on Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin by sponsors. I also pay some of the people or some of the support staff and some of the freelancers I work with with Bitcoin. So at the end of each month, I have to settle my balances. And I had been looking for a wallet to use this when I got my spreadsheets open and I'm doing my accounts. I needed an easy way of just accessing a Bitcoin wallet that I could be using for these types of payments. So when Exodus reached out to me, I checked them out. I loved it. The Crush the UX is absolutely what I'm looking for. So they've now become my mobile and desktop wallet of choice, especially the desktop wallet. Now, if you want to check them out, you just need to head over to exodus.io, Google Exodus wallet, or just go to the Apple or Google app stores and search for Exodus. Next up, we have my friends over at Casa. Love these guys. They absolutely crush Bitcoin security. And listen, if in this run, your Bitcoin stack is growing and you're thinking, shit, man, I need to get this sorted. I need my security in place. Then I can't recommend Casa highly enough. I have been a customer myself for eight months. I've got in place my practices. I've got in place my procedures. And that peace of mind is absolutely something that I would recommend. Also, it just stops me making stupid mistakes, protects me from in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And look, with Casa, there's a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet. That's only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig. Now, that's the best protection for large Bitcoin holders. That also comes at a really good price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full badass service offering. That includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security than right now. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly to this week, but never least, my good friend sportsbet.io. I used the platform this weekend. I put a bet on Liverpool to beat Man U, and damn, it didn't happen. Very disappointed by that. Liverpool aren't scoring at the moment, but still, I have faith. Now listen, if you have been watching Premier League football, if you've been seeing the Bitcoin logo, you have sportsbet.io to thank for that because they are the front of shirt sponsor for Southampton and they are also the betting partner for Arsenal. They absolutely love Bitcoin and they're doing everything they can to push Bitcoin around the world. Now, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They've got football, tennis, American sports, motorsports. They've even got esports. And because they're badasses, they accept Bitcoin. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. You just need to head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to find out more. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Has your opinion changed during this Bitcoin journey quite significantly on any issue? And I'm going to tee it up to tell you where it has for me. Um, 
I always thought the idea of a $1 million Bitcoin or in excess of $1 million, I thought it was ludicrous. I was like, come on, that's never going to happen. It certainly changed over the last year. I've started to understand why that can happen. Um, that's one of the biggest changes. The other thing that's really changed for me is uh, my conviction around the importance of the Lightning Network. I'd written it off, completely written off. I was like, no one's going to use this. It's got no importance. I now understand why it's important and, and when it will be important, which isn't today, although saying that with everything Jack Mallers is doing strike. But generally speaking, it's not today. If anything can drastically change for you. Yeah, so so you mentioned lightning, and I, I talk about lightning in the book, and I also highlighted it as having you know huge huge potential, basically. I ha- have to agree that every day that goes by and you know jack with strike various other parties yeah who are actually building useful things on top of it it seems like that's coming to fruition um i used to be quite skeptical of the uh moneyness or store of value share that bitcoin's going to steal from you know all these other assets in other words if three if there's 300 trillion or 350 trillion dollars of real estate globally, you know, how much of Bitcoin is going to, how much of that's going to be taken by Bitcoin of that store of value of those empty apartments in Kensington, um, you know, that nobody lives in, they don't even rent them out. I mean, they just sit there as assets. Yes, you could make an argument that they're also a potential place to live for, you know, those very wealthy people who have to flee from somewhere else, but basically they're store of value. But as the world has been so warped with quantitative easing and central bank policy and the money printing, I really can see huge amounts of store of value transferring out of real estate and into Bitcoin. Um, I have a friend, he's not a client, but he's a friend, you know, who emailed me, said, okay, I'm, I'm finally interested in this thing. He's a professional real estate investor, and I'm probably going to be talking with him soon and I, you know, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to say, look, real estate has for decades and decades, well, centuries, really. I mean, there was a time when real estate was the scarce asset, right? <laughs> Back in the Middle Ages or, you know, when people were living on farms, the productive land was the thing to own. I do think that we could move into a world where people say, you know, owning that second house or that third house or that investment property yeah, if it's cash flowing, then then that's a real asset. But as a store of value, it just doesn't appeal as much as Bitcoin because I can move the Bitcoin, I can take it with me. You know, if they they can't take it from me as easily, you know, they can't just uh, call the cops or or the military and and roll over my piece of property and and seize it. And so, in the book, I think I I assigned like a few trillion dollars of potential upside value for Bitcoin as taking store of value from, you know, real estate stocks, et cetera. I have come to the view that that potential upside is much higher, maybe. And that's the hundred trillion, you know, the hundred trillion dollar case is that it takes a real big fat bite out of the store of value attributes of, uh, of some of those existing investment assets. So that's one thing that I've changed my mind on. Well, what about the psychological effects of the, the, this price continually changing because as more people adopt Bitcoin, as it takes more market share, like you say, in terms of say the real estate market, it just becomes more and more expensive. It's kind of like shit. If I'd have done, it's like Michael Saylor did it at eleven thousand dollars. We're now at thirty thousand. And others are looking, go, oh, I'd love to have done what he did, but 
it's 34,000. I'm going to get a third less. I'm going to get a third of what he did, not thinking, actually, they can still 3x theirs, right? What What's the psychological impact of this continually? Because it, it gets a lot more expensive very quickly. So... I'm glad you brought up this point because it's another thing that's changed in, in my thinking, which was yeah. before you're having cycles. Smart, I guess smarter people than me had already gained conviction, let's say, around the four-year having cycle, you know, as of a couple of years ago. Don't get me wrong. I had conviction. I was accumulating, continuing to accumulate, you know, dollar cost average Bitcoin mm-hmm. since 2017. But I wasn't sort of convinced that this four-year having cycle with the supply shock, you know, and then the FOMO feeding into uh, the big uh, rise in price was just going to repeat like clockwork. And now here we are. (laughs) And it's the third time. And I think people just have to start to say, okay, this pattern, we only had two data points before, but the logic, right, is pretty unassailable. I mean, the supply cut is, is just relatively clear. And so you have to say to yourself, okay, well, it's playing out again as anticipated in accordance with this, uh, with this model. And people's acceptance of that, I think that's actually a significant portion of what's bringing the, uh, the big money in, you know, the institutional money in, like the Skybridge guys, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think people have probably realized that, oh, it's just likely to keep repeating. And if I can have some confidence in that, then if I can hold for four to five years, um, you know, I'm probably going to be fine and I'm probably going to make a multiple even if there continue to be those upturns and then crashes downwards and then recoveries with bear markets. Yeah. And so if you have a five-year time horizon, it's like, why wouldn't you take this bet? Well, yeah, I see that's the thing. You have to get your head around this idea that the value of Bitcoin can go up on a long enough timescale can always go up. It can keep going up. So, yeah, you might feel like you're late. I think there's some real psychological issues for people. I think those psychological issues for certain people get harder with every cycle. I mean, like my friends, they they would just see and say, I can't own a Bitcoin. It's like, no, you can own Bitcoin. You can't. You might not be able to own a whole Bitcoin right now, but you can own Bitcoin and you can appreciate your value. It's probably different for somebody who's putting 100 million in for their company, but I think that's psychological things important but either way so andy listen say they've got this far and they're like okay i get it it's magical money i understand what's the problem with the other money like where the hell do i start what's my starting point what should i well yeah i mean there's two pieces and i've i sort of go back and forth on this i do believe in the get some skin in the game right like buy Mm -hmm. something um yeah so you know i do i work with swan as you know we have a dca product so so of course i i shill them on that and then if they're off, if they're on zero, right, if they have no allocation, usually I say, okay, buy, you know, some chunk and then DCA afterward and see how you, how you feel about it. At current prices, as we talked about before, I'm a little reluctant to tell them to, to buy a decent chunk up front, but, you know, I'm, I have to, I sort of go back and forth on that. And then I tell them, just keep learning, keep learning because, oh, the other thing I tell them, by the way, is <clears throat> assume that the moment you buy some, it's going to crash immediately. Like it's going to go down 30%. Like just be ready for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because let's be honest, uh, it, it, that's what happens with me. I mean, I remember I made a, you know, I think I made a sizable buy. It was like 11 and a half. 
maybe this was in September, I'm trying to remember. I bought it at 11 and a half. It immediately went under 10, right? Like it was like, it's down 20% literally an hour later. I was like, ah. And then likewise, I think I bought, I think I bought 20 or I bought like 19 and a half, right? And it had that dip down to 16 and a half. It's like, ah, every time, which is why, you know, DCA is, is so appealing. But yeah, I do prepare people. I try to prepare people mentally. And by the way, you, it's easy to say the words. It's very different to feel the feeling in your gut when you just mm -hmm. bought something that goes down by 30% immediately. But I try to prepare people for that. And then, yeah, I tell them to, I tell them to keep learning. You know, read more books. Go, go listen to podcasts. Go listen to Peter. You know, basically- Get down the suck, rabbit hole. Get down the rabbit hole. Suck in this knowledge because the more you know- the, the stronger will your hodl grip be, the more you'll be able to suffer those downturns and not get shaken out of the position. And that's the that's the main thing, man. Not getting shaken out of the position, as uh, as old man Partridge uh, talked about in uh, in that book, Confessions of a Stock Operator. The worst thing you can do in a bull market is get shaken out of your position, right? No no stock tipster in that in that case was going to convince Partridge to sell some of his precious stock that he knew was going to go up in the long run, even if he was sure that it was going to go down in the short run, because he was going to have to catch both the sell and the rebuy, you know, plus there's obviously the tax effects. And, um, yeah, I, I try to tell people, I try to instill people in people that idea of don't get shaken out of the position, learn what you have to learn to, uh, gain conviction and continue learning because there's so much to learn. But when do we know when this bull market's over, man? Yeah, like you, you never you know, could right? hit You could hit $200,000. You're like, holy shit. And then it crashes down to 50. Or it could fly up to 400. Like, this is my son. My son's like, Dad, are you going to sell something? I'm like, well, maybe. It's like, well, Dad, if it hits this price, you could get this. And I'm like, yeah, but what if it goes higher? It's like an internal joke between us now. Like, it's like, oh, like how do you know? And I don't think you I do. Think you don't know. You don't know. And I think that comes down to, you know, personal circumstances. So, mm. for example, say you're in a position where you have a fiat job, but you got a stack of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And at some, at some price, you know, some price up in the six figures, if you peel off some percentage, then you're set for a while. Well, that's a reasonable decision to make, right? It's reasonable to peel some off set up your financial security at least for some period of time so you can basically do what you want. So that's one way to look at it. Another one is, is regret management. This is a framework I like to apply with clients, right? How would you feel if, right? How would you feel if you could have peeled a bunch off at 300K and then it falls to 75K? And that's hard to imagine if you haven't already been through it. If you have been through it, like you and I have, <laughs> Peter, then uh, it's not so hard to imagine. And no. uh, now, on the one hand, we now that we've been through it, it'll probably be less painful, this cycle. But on the other hand, it still might be somewhat painful. So, yeah, I think it's facts and circumstances. Everybody is in a different position. And then, yeah, as you suggested, you know, maybe there's something you want to do. You want to buy a better house um or you know if you've got a big enough stack you want a second home somewhere you know we can get into flag theory you know you want to have assets in multiple jurisdictions potentially 
I mean, there's all these there's all these different variables that I just think are are different for uh, for each individual. All right, man. All right. Well, listen. Let's let's move on to the risks. Then we've covered. I think at this point, I'm pretty convinced, but I'm already here, <laughs> so I'm a bit biased. <laughs> but I think other people listening might be pretty convinced right now. Like you've outlined why it's magical. You've outlined the problems with money. You've outlined the investment thesis. You've outlined where people start. What are the risks? Because there are risks. So this is where you know where you being all in, and me being all in. We could look back and go, we were fucking idiots. <laughs> we were idiots. What did we do? Why did we make such a risk? <laughs> yeah. So, so the book, as I mentioned before, I think has like 40 pages of, of risks. Um, Technical, and there's four... political, economic. You group together sociological and psychological. Yeah. You know, these, these categories you mentioned, technical, political, economic, and then uh, sociological and psychological, they're sort of arbitrary, those four categories. But yeah, as you as you pointed out, the the sociological and, and psychological I kind of lumped together. Although you could you could maybe separate you know the the behavior of individuals versus the behavior of groups, and maybe that's a you know a place to start. I mean, the categories I include are you know naysayers and the media. I think that we can mostly dismiss those. A year ago, there were really credible people, you know, telling you this thing is rat poison and baby brains and and garbage. Those people are starting to flip. I mean, some of them yeah. are are not saying negative things anymore. Others uh, are have flipped positive. Um, others, yeah, it, it's there's some wave there clearly where certain people have flipped, and obviously there's some naysayers we we now know and love who maybe mm -hmm. will never change their tune. Well, but uh, we've got we got Ray Dalio. He kind of admitted I could be wrong here. Teach me about it. Mark Cuban this week started going yeah. a bit more pro positive. Uh, we we're left. I think at the end we were left with Peter Schiff, Nero Rabini, and uh, Francis Coppola. The same three people are going to hate it till their death. Yeah. Well, let's talk another. Let's talk about another you know piece of foot or another risk in that category, which yeah, is man. the environmental one, right? And you and yes. I. Yeah, you we and know. I covered this in our recent article on Bitcoin Magazine, right? Winning Hearts and Minds for Bitcoin. And my thinking has actually evolved on this point. I used to take, I used to make the argument of, well, yeah, some of the energy that's burned is dirty, you know, whatever it's, it's coal and natural gas, you know, that's fueling some of the mining capacity, some of the hash rate, but a lot of it is clean. Now I've gotten much more aggressive in how I frame it, which is actually... It's pretty clear that in a now global market for energy, in a world where electricity doesn't travel more than a few hundred miles, well, then much of the renewable energy in the world is stranded assets. It's basically sunny places in the desert or windy places offshore that are just too far from a population center for it to make sense to, uh, to build energy production capacity, whether it's solar arrays or wind farms or what have you. But with Bitcoin, you can. All you need is the internet connection. And so this is going to dramatically increase the unit sales of solar, right? Mm -hmm. And every industry on the planet basically goes this way. It is the new technology is way too expensive. So there's some niche application where it gets a foothold. And then as demand rises, the units go up, which increases the revenue of the company, which funds the research and development of the technology which brings the average cost down, which brings in more users, and you had this virtuous cycle 
that brings the whole thing down the cost curve. And to me, that logic is unassailable. It happens in every industry. Why wouldn't it happen with, say, solar and Bitcoin? Why wouldn't the fact that you can now build Bitcoin mining farms in the middle of the desert, you know, fund more R&D for these solar companies to bring the average cost of, uh, of energy down? And so, yeah, and so what we know is there's sticks and carrots, right? With any, with any externality, negative externality, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's my neighbor is making too much noise and it has a negative effect on me, or whether it's that power plant is spewing too much carbon into the atmosphere, you can either threaten them with, with a tax, you know, or some limitation, or you can incentivize them, right, basically to, to do better. And many technologies, they start with some of both. They start with incentives from government in a lot of cases, and that can help get something off the ground. It happened with, with ARPANET, right, which became the internet. It's happened in a lot of different examples. But once you get to a, second, a certain level, you need the private sector to take over. And that's where we are with Bitcoin. So to my mind, five years from now, some governor in some province you know, of India, as an example, is going to make the decision, oh, am I going to install a coal plant or a natural gas plant or a solar array? Well, <laughs> by that point, when there's a decision to install some piece of equipment that's going to be used for decades, right? And if it's dirty and spewing out carbon, it's going to be spewing out carbon for decades. But if it's clean, then it's not then you better already have gotten to the point where the average cost, the fully loaded cost of the clean technology is lower. Because unless you're ready to write him a check, right, to make up, make up the difference in cost, which in the rich world, we just haven't, we clearly haven't been willing to do. I mean, obviously, the, you know, in Europe, there's been more of that, but there, the U.S. hasn't done much of it. Unless you're willing to, to write big fat checks, then you better hope that that cleaner technology has gotten to the point where on an average basis, it is cheaper than the dirty one. And I think Bitcoin is going to accelerate that process. Well, man, it's a different, rant, definitely, sorry. Di well, no, but it's a, it's a definitely, a, it's a, I guess it's a counterattack, right? Because yes. sometimes, like, despite what everyone says, it is kind of hard to justify it. I mean, it's, I can justify it, but if somebody says, well, Bitcoin is using the same amount of energy as half of africa you're like yeah well but gold uses this blah blah still it's a very difficult one but if you can actually explain what you said there it's a counterattack. it's actually a it's actually a pro it's a positive it pushes down the cost of production it absolutely... leads to a cleaner world so i think it's a solid argument the funny thing though is i'm i haven't seen so much of the uh i think i've seen it's only seen one person really mention the environmental side during this cycle so far it doesn't seem to be propping up yet. Maybe it will. I think what will happen is Bitcoin breaks 100K. Some people are going to get really fucking salty. And then they're going to kind of bring out their all their kind of like all their uh, big guns. Pow, pow, pow. Take it on. And the environment will be one part of that. But what about what are. So that's not really a risk then. Let's talk about the actual risk. Let's, like, I mean, look, technical risk. I put it down to one big catastrophic bug. That's to me. That's the only real technical risk worth talking about and i don't worry too much about that right now i think if it is it's recoverable with with consequences a rollback and consequences i mean are there other ones am i being naive here andy well you know i think because you mentioned vj earlier and i i feel like in your recent or most recent conversation he may maybe mentioned like a major hack you know like if coinbase or theft if coinbase gets compromised and a big stack is stolen 
that shouldn't be terminal for it, but it could set us back, you know, for some period of time. Um, but again, there is, you're right, there's a big difference between what will actually kill it versus what will set it back in time. And I have actually come to your conclusion, which is <laughs> unless it stops cranking out blocks on the regular, right? Unless it stops clearing significant amounts of value every 10 minutes, roughly, then it's hard for me to see what's going to kill it. You know, we could talk about the, you know, the government attack or the government FUD. And this well, gets do to... Do you know what? Let me throw one in here. I think the, the, the one Saifedean talks about, the best government attack on Bitcoin is good policy. <laughs> yes. They I agree. I think he's case, right. Use case. He's, he's spot on. Yes. Government rectitude, right? That is, that is a clear and present threat to Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. Just like, uh, just like we're, we're dead if, uh, if our solar system collides with another star. Uh, let me do the probability calculation on. Uh, <laughs> let me get my let me get my calculator out. <laughs> fucking fat zero. Yeah. The other thing too, I mean, that gets into the ethics of it too, right? I mean, I personally, there's nothing I'd rather be working on than than Bitcoin, honestly, for ethical reasons Agreed. as Agreed. well as as well as number go up reasons. But even if it fails ultimately, or even if it doesn't reach its potential. If it brings government to heal a little bit and prevents the serious crack-up boom, right, what the Austrians would call the crack-up boom that's coming, or if it brings it, even if it brings it forward and makes it less severe, I mean, I, I talked to family members about this, you know, we talk about the fourth turning, I think you had, you had Brendan Quidam on maybe to, to talk about that, and, you know, every 80 years or so, we get one of these crack-ups Usually it's a major war. You know, last time it was World War II. The time before that it was the Civil War. The time before that it was the Revolutionary War. And people die. So to me, it's like how many people are going to die, you know, in this next hard period, which I actually think will happen in the 2020s. This is my expectation. Sorry to get dark on you here. Mm -hmm. But if Bitcoin can help with that, can mitigate it, you know, can... Uh, can cause the ultimate crack up to be less painful. That alone is worth working on. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. Um, I I really can't think of something else I'd rather be working on right now. I mean, I'd like to make films, but when I made films, I kind of wanted to make a Bitcoin film. Um, it's just so fascinating to be at the forefront of something, and it really clicked for me again recently. Um, it's, I've been working my way through the sovereign individual because I'm doing a show about it with Breedlove soon, and I'm like, perfect, I've like got got to be super prepared for this. You know, he blows my mind when I talk to him, so I was like, I've got to be super prepared. So I'm going through it, and actually, the idea that we're going through a like a revolution that this is a period in time whereby you know we look back at the history books and we talk about the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or the you know the digital revolution like this is something that might be looked back in the history books in a couple hundred years oh this is when money changed this is how money used to be and then money became this and then suddenly everything kind of got better i'm not going to say it's a panacea for fixing everything but but it'd be really it's really interesting to say shit we're living at the forefront of this it's huge this is when well, this is what happens i mean you mentioned Breedlove, who did his special with sailor and you did mm -hmm. i think two episodes of sailor I love the I love Sailor's quote where he says, "I'm giving you fire, and you want to trade it." 
<laughs> you want to trade it, right? Like I'm giving you this civilizational changing technology, and yeah, you want to you want to dick around and uh, and trade it up and down. And I, yeah, it's entirely possible. The longer we we spend doing this, the more we learn about it. The deeper down the rabbit hole we fall, the more likely or the clearer it seems that this is a major major civilizational inflection point. I want to, by the way, I want to talk a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about policy around that too. So I have a a friend who works in cybersecurity and I put a question to him publicly on Twitter the other day. He didn't respond. At least I don't think he did. And the question I put to him was, you know, will cybersecurity move forward, be able to move forward without Bitcoin? And here's why. So you probably know about this recent hack, the SolarWinds hack. Mm-hmm. And basically all this personal information we think got you know, seized, uh, compromised by the Russians. We don't really know, you know who took it, but it's just the latest in a long trail. I talk about this in the book of hacks and personal identities stolen and personal information taken. And there's never any penalty, right? Equifax was the classic case. Remember the Equifax hack a few years ago, 143 million identities stolen. And a year after it, the stock was higher. <laughs> like There basically was no downside. There was no penalty. For the first time, first of all, with ransomware, right? Ransomware where Bitcoin is demanded payment as payment. For the first time, there's an actual financial penalty for not having your cybersecurity house in order. This is huge. This means that actually there, there you know, there's something to be lost by the company that basically is behaving badly or negligently. The second thing I would say is, as the world transitions to more and more interconnectedness, we're spending more of our time on the internet, basically, in cyberspace. We have to get security right. We have to get cybersecurity right. It is critical to the functioning of the system and therefore the whole species. And so Bitcoin is the first time that there's an actual bounty on securing private keys, right? It's most evident with the exchanges. It's if they screw up, they lose huge amounts of money. And because there is that bounty, it raises the game for the world overall on figuring out newer and better ways of managing private information. And this is, I really think, crucial uh, to the advancement and survival of all humanity. Dude, that's a great way to end it. Bitcoin is well, hey. about the survival of all of humanity. <laughs> all right, look, firstly, brilliant as ever. If you listen to this and you haven't bought Andy's book, go and buy Andy's book. It's called Why Buy Bitcoin. I'm going to put links in the show notes. But Andy, look, listen, if people want to find out more, where should they go? What else should they do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Peter. Um, follow me on Twitter. The handle is Edstrom Andrew. That's the last name, first name. Um, as you said, the book is Why Buy Bitcoin. It's on Amazon. It's on Apple. Uh, of course, I work with Swan Bitcoin. Um, swanbitcoin.com forward slash Andy. You can get a little free Bitcoin. You can do your dollar cost averaging. And then if you want to see or hear other you know, interviews or podcast appearances I've done, it's personal website, andyedstrom.com. Right. Well, I'll put links to that, all of that in the show notes. Probably not for Swan because, you know, I've got sponsors, but whatever, man. But listen, <laughs> I appreciate you coming. No, it's all good. Look, it's great to get to know you, man, recently. Um, hopefully we'll do some other stuff together. I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're doing. Uh, good luck with it all. And yeah, go and check out Andy's book. 
fucking yeah, thanks, Peter. And actually, let me add in one more show, which is the article you and I co-authored on Bitcoin this Magazine. Is it's called. <laughs> it's called this is winning. bullshit, by the way. This was Andy's <laughs> work that I helped a little bit, and I reviewed. I, I, I think I can take credit for inspiring it and reviewing and adding some comments, but it was your work, bro. Well, look, it was a better product for your involvement. Um, Thank you. If not least because it started the gun on on, on getting it out. You know, yeah. the as people may have heard the story, it was you did that episode with Matt O'Dell. I was already working on the article, and then you basically ideated the same concept on your episode. And I was like, yeah, wow, man. I got to get this done. Got to get it out. So anyway. Every, everyone needs to read Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind. It's like a real game-changing book. Um, should make you a little bit more tolerant to other ideas. Maybe it won't. did for me. Well, listen, anyway, I'm going to stick it all in the show notes. Andy, love you, man. Uh, stay in touch. Anything you need, you can always reach out to me. And I bet we'll be making another show in another few months anyway. Thanks so much, Peter. Bitcoin. I look forward. It's been a great time. All right, bro. All right. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that one? I love Andy, man. He's so cool. Two shows very quickly. We also, well, he says we co-authored an article. We didn't. He wrote an article, which I helped review, added some suggestions. He said we co-authored it. It was mainly his work, but that's worth checking out. It's another great episode to send off to your no-coiner mates as well. I just did the one with VJ, the Bitcoin 101, but I think this one would be good for your mates as well. Any of those thinking of getting involved in Bitcoin, they should check this out and also go and check out Andy's book. I do love talking to Andy. He absolutely smashed it with this book. It really covers it all and as i said in the intro i think dispelling some of the risks and the fud is super helpful as bitcoiners we're dealing with this day in day out with all the journalists in the mainstream media who only ever cover this twice right they cover it when the price goes down they're like hurrah bitcoin's dead or when the price goes up they want to talk about us boiling polar bears and bullshit like that so anyway it's a great book go and check it out share the show with your friends and family and if you've got any questions or feedback as always, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, iTunes reviews. Just head over to iTunes, leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. If you think it's shit and want to give it one star, then so be it. That's the way it is. But reviews do help with the listings. Also, Out in Defiance got a brand new show looking at the death of distance, how the regulatory or living environments is changing people's thoughts about where they want to be based. With COVID and lockdowns, a lot of companies have realized they don't actually need an office or people have realized they can live anywhere. So that's a super interesting topic. I had my friend Balaji on as part of that as well. That's at defiance.news. I hope you go and check that out. Anyway, have a great weekend and I love you all and I'll see you all next week.